Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Robert Puckett, Molly Keck, and Janet Hurley. This episode of Unwanted Guests, we are going to be talking about baits and what they are. So these are a type of a pesticide formulation, but I think a lot of people get confused about baits because these are really different than pretty much everything else. I mean, these are going to be essentially a food attractant of some sort that is drawing in whatever pest that you are trying to manage but it has the active ingredient, which is what kills the pest, formulated in that or dissolved in that. And that way, when they eat the bait, they're going to end up getting a dose of that and hopefully die from it. I think that's kind of the, I don't know, like the sticking point with a lot of people where they don't understand that baits are attracting the pests in. And so when they start seeing a whole bunch of the different insects, they start to panic <laughs> or, mm-hmm. you know, rodents in that case too, because there's rodent baits. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Janet. So let's get this platform right for our audience. You hear us recommend, oh, you need a bait. And then you go stand in the pesticide section of your store and you're looking at this stuff, let's break it down first so that the audience gets this right. Baits in a granular form. Let's just talk about those first. Okay. Yeah. What are they? Janet, are you talking about the product confusion between granular contact insecticides and granular baits? Yes. And ants. But that's the one, if they're sitting in the, the big box store, mm-hmm. And they see fire ant killer versus mm-hmm. fire ant bait. Yeah. What do they need to look for? Yeah, I think an area of product confusion for a lot of consumers that are dealing with, let's just for a moment restrict our conversation to fire ants, right? Fire ant baits and fire ant management products. I think a lot of our listeners in the southern United States have sort of been through this before, you know, you go, you go to the big box store and you look at the shelf and there's sort of this bewildering diversity of products that are labeled for use against red imported fire ants. Folks that have heard me talk before about fire ant management know that I'm a big advocate of using baits for them and, and lots of other insect pests too. And we can get into why uh, later, but, but when you go to the, the big box stores, there's many granular products. So granular baits and granular contact insecticides, fire ant killer granules versus fire ant bait granules. And, and the big difference here, and it's, it's important to understand that the, the contact insecticide granules, there's a carrier matrix that carries the contact insecticide. Those granules are applied onto or across, onto, onto fire ant mounds individually or across a, a yard to provide prophylactic treatment from new infestations. They're typically watered in either through natural irrigation or you know an irrigation system. And that releases the active ingredient into the soil. And then, of course, ants come in contact with the contact insecticide, and that's it for them. So essentially, with a a fire ant contact granule, Uh that water is dissolving the matrix of it and 
causing that to kind of soak down into the soil where the fire ants are. Correct. Right. Which is different from the fire ant bait granule. Correct. So can you, one of you explain why one is one way and the other is the other way. And what I'm driving at is contact versus the bait, how they differently kill. Well, yeah. So, so there, you, you've got the contact insecticide that's released from the contact granules, but then granular baits are very different. So just as, as we discussed earlier, these are baits that the ants recognize as a food resource. So most of our, our fire ant baits are the carrier matrix is defatted corn grit. So it's defatted through a process. Um, the granules themselves are just corn grit. An active uh, insecticidal ingredient is added to soybean oil, which is then added back to the defatted corn grits, which tends to soak that up. And now the corn grit is carrying an oil, which is also carrying a chemical insecticide. And the ants feed on that material. They recognize it as a food resource. And when we say they feed on the material, they do not eat the corn grit. They They are sucking the soybean oil with the active ingredient dissolved in it off of that corn grit. The corn grit is just a way to get it out there. Yeah, very, very important point because there's this sort of internet myth that proliferate proliferates that, um, you know, never some people believe, ending. yeah, it never ends. You can ask, <laughs> you can ask how many people have heard of this in a group of 20 people and three or four will raise their hand every time. And this idea that you can destroy fire ants by offering them cornmeal or corn grit meant for human consumption. The idea is that the, the, the worker ants will feed on that material. Um, the dry material will enter their body where there's moisture, the grits will swell up and pop the ants. And that absolutely does not work. They, uh, the worker ant, adult worker ants, fire ants cannot consume solid foods. I mean, some, some tiny solid particles, but the majority of their solid food, they take back to the fourth developmental stage of the larvae who, who have a means of breaking down solid foods to create more of a liquid meal for the workers to slurp up. And that's that. So don't feed your fire ants corn grits or cornmeal. You'll simply be feeding them. As Wizzy mentioned, they take in the toxicant and the oil. And then with social insects, there's this beautiful system that works against them um, in that they have to feed their nest mates through a process known as trophallaxis, which, you know, basically we're describing them regurgitating food resources for their nest mates. And in doing so, they share the active ingredient with their nest mates and the bait makes its way through the colony, killing workers and eventually hopefully killing the queens that exist in your fire ant colony. So the big difference here is that Contact insecticides kill your fire ants by contacting them. They're not restricted to just killing fire ants. They'll kill other arthropods in the environment, whereas baits are very, very selective for red imported fire ants. And and that's really the beauty of of baits in general, in in my opinion, is that they're usually developed and designed to, to impact one species rather than being a broad spectrum insecticide. So we also need to mention when we're dealing with baits, since these are a food product for whatever pest you're attracting with the pesticide in it, they can go bad and you can contaminate them if you are using them in areas of other types of pesticide. And the other thing is, especially with fire ant baits, because I get this all the time, People think that they are the contact granules and they think that they need to water them in. And if you do that, then essentially you are 
wasting what you just did because the fire ants don't want to pick up soggy bait. And mm-hmm. I always equate this to a soggy cheeseburger. Nobody wants to eat a soggy cheeseburger. So fire ants do not want to eat soggy fire ant bait. So you don't want to get your baits wet. That is a very, very good point. And it sort of speaks to, um, or brings up the idea of reasons for bait failure. And, and I think you, you mentioned something that was very important for when we're using baits, we're, we're offering what the target insect believes is a food resource. And so you have to ask yourself as a person who's applying those baits, whether it be for red imported fire ants or um, other pest insects, are you offering those baits to them during a time that they're going to be actively foraging for food? A lot of failures, I know, because there are lots of calls from folks that complain about fire ant baits not working. And then you you kind of drill down and say, well, when did you when did you put them out in your yard? And they'll say, well, you know, last Wednesday. And you look at you go back and look at the weather in their area that Wednesday and it, you know, it never got above 40 degrees. Well, you know, the fire ants were not out foraging during that time. You know, I get that a lot with carpenter ants. Oh, yeah. People yeah. are using baits for carpenter ants. They typically forage in the evening and people will throw the stuff out in the morning. And that isn't when they're active. So right. You need to do it at the right time. Exactly. For our listeners, I want you guys to understand audience is this they're talking about this but we are talking about baits work specifically on specific insects and it's based on their life cycle and their diet and everything else so we just talked about two different ants carpenter ants and fire ants and it's funny because as we've been talk chatting about this i am determining if i've got carpenter ants or fire ants at my house but knowing when i'm going to bait because again, it, the weather gets warm, it gets cold, it gets warm, but really, when do we really want to bait for ants? And then the difference between one ant that might eat in the morning versus an ant that will eat bait in the evening. These are things that, you know, as you're listening to our podcast, you might get an idea of, oh, there's more than just one thing I got to know about how I get rid of a bug. That's right. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> it gets worse as the longer you do this. Yeah, you know, and at the at the base of that sort of decision matrix as you're selecting products for an insect pest, just as you said, you know, you use the general term bug. Uh, this is not how baits, you got to know what insect you're dealing with. So identification is very, very important. There's baits for m- many, many different groups of, of insect pests. You know, we've got fly baits, cockroach baits, termite baits, the ant baits. And even among those, there's different formulations, uh, different types of baits. But I think for cockroaches, we've got dry flowable baits. We have gel baits for ants. We have um, gel baits and granular baits um, and different matrices. Well, there's also the pastes that yeah, you can right. get for cockroaches. I mean, there's so much stuff out there. And I think it has advantages and disadvantages on pretty much everything. I mean, everything's going to have the pros and cons, but you know, some advantages is that you can really one target what insect group you're trying to manage, but then two, you can pick a formulation that you're comfortable with applying or that you have equipment to apply. I know a lot of people, if they have, let's say rover ants or something in their kitchen, get a little bait station and you put that out where you see them foraging and you don't have to do anything other than that. It's already there. It's prepackaged. You sometimes have to open the bait station, but 
you're done. It's one and done. And fly baits, some of those can be a little more complex. I have some of the fly spray bait at home and got to spray it, but I'll put that around the garbage cans in the summertime when right. the flies are going bananas. <laughs> so <laughs> you kind of use the formulations and it also can work to your advantage in different areas. Like if you have cockroaches, some of the gel baits come in syringes. And if you have something underneath a countertop where a gel bait is going to drip off, that might be where you use a paste instead that's a little bit thicker. Mm-hmm. So, you oh, and yeah, you know, um, all that into account. Yeah, the cockroach baiting techniques. Um, well, there's quite a lot of product innovation in that world. But a lot of people have gotten really creative. And I'm, I'm thinking about like Dr. Deanie Miller's cockroach bait tacos. Do you guys know about these? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yes. So they're working in public housing and they've developed a means for um, distributing lots of baits for German cockroaches in a very short period of time. And essentially, they just take wax paper and cut squares and then fold them on a diagonal and put a little ribbon of bait along the fold line and then kind of fold them up kind of like a kind of like a crispy taco and they can build tons of those, you know, very quickly. And they go into apartments and they just simply slide these under places where cockroaches are known to, to harbor and they find them and eat through the wax paper. And, and that's that for them. I don't think that Joe homeowner needs to necessarily do that, but if you have a really massive cockroach infestation, that is a way to get enough bait into the area because that can be a problem if you're baiting for cockroaches. Depending on your population size, you got to make sure that you're getting enough bait out there that you're going to knock that population back. So either, you know, go in with a vacuum and suck up the majority of what you're seeing and then bait for the rest. But then, you know, if you can't do that, then putting out massive amounts of bait and the bait taco is a way to do that. So, I mean, we were saying this, but again, if you're listening to our podcast and you've heard us say before, just because you live in the South does not mean you need to live with cockroaches. This is the, the method. Only if you're at my house. <laughs> okay. If you raise the cockroaches, that's a different story audience. That's a whole different world. But if you're worried about, you know, you're living in an apartment complex or a fourplex or someplace where you're worried about this, there are methods that you can do. It's just, all right, Robert and Wizzy, again, I'm at the big box store or I'm at my local grocery store because I can find this stuff there as well. What do we tell our listeners what to look for when they go to the store? For what insect? For cockroaches. If I want to use cockroach bait, okay, because I know there's some out there, but again. So if you live in a, well, anywhere, but especially if it's like a multi-unit housing type thing, if you go to a big box store, I would recommend not only picking up the cockroach bait, but also getting some stuff to exclude them. That way they can't move in from the neighboring locations because they can move through the wall voids through pipes and stuff so look underneath the sinks and stuff for any pipe penetrations seal all that stuff off so they're staying out that way making sure that screens and doors and all of that are in good repair and make sure that you're keeping them out and then you just get whatever bait and usually with cockroaches you do need to know if you have the bigger the little cockroaches because the the bait stations are going to have different size openings based upon 
which ones you have. But typically, if you have cockroaches inside and they're living in there and they're breeding in there, they are going to be the smaller species. The larger species typically are outdoor species and they will occasionally come inside. So you typically don't have as many of those. So if you get the bait station, I I recommend that for people that are uncomfortable and don't think that they have enough knowledge to do anything. And then you're going to plunk those down in not the middle of the room. You're going to put them in hidden locations under the refrigerator, under the kitchen sink, under the bathroom sink, maybe behind the toilet. And the other good benefit that I think of with the bait stations is that if you have a pet, they can't access that. They're not going to be licking it up because it's got that nice little cover and whatnot. And it's, it's good. So you can do that. And some of them also have like that uh, sticky stuff on the back. So if you peel off the thing, you can like slap that on the side of a cabinet or something. But again, you need to make sure that it's in an area where the cockroaches are going to be hanging out. So they're going to be in dark hidden locations. So if I was going to slap that on the side of something, it would be between I don't know, like the countertop and the oven, because that's a nice cozy place. It's nice and warm in there, nice tight fitting space and great for cockroaches. The other thing that I need to think about or that we need to maybe talk about, we talked about the different types of insects that baits can target, which are, you know, termites, ants, flies, cockroaches, things like that. But Robert, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Will one bait work on multiple types of insects? Yes and no, in my opinion. I mean, because if you think about some of the ant baits, Mm -hmm. they'll work on other ants, but you're not going to be able to use ant baits to control your cockroaches or your flies or something like that. Yeah, that's right. There's there's not a one sort of a one product fits all bait for insects. This is why we've mentioned a couple of times, you know, you got to be able to identify your insect pest and then do a little homework online and see what baits are available for those guys. And as you mentioned, Wizzy, in ants, it's, it's um, you know, this is a, a hurdle that we sort of, you know, it's difficult for us to get through to consumers. Folks tend to think of ants as ants. And in some ways that's kind of the case, but when it comes to baits, it's not, absolutely not. So, you, you know, you there's this whole suite of species that people generally refer to as sugar ants. So why do we do that? Well, because they prefer carbohydrate-rich food resources um, that they would typically get from extrafloral nectaries, honeydew-producing insects, etc. So they're looking for sugar-rich food resources. So if you offer them a granular bait that's corn grit and some soybean oil, that's uh, not going to satisfy their dietary needs. They're probably not going to find that bait preferable and, and wouldn't recruit to it. Whereas if you offer them a a sugar-rich bait, a gel bait, for instance, um, they're they're much more likely to take the bait and enough of it to destroy their colony. Okay, so you just used terminology that people might not know. You said recruit to the bait. Explain what that process is. And this works for ants and termites and whatnot. Many of our social insects have really interesting foraging dynamics. And part of their foraging behavior is that when... um, you know, so let's imagine an ant that's gone out foraging. It's left the colony behind and she's searching for food resources in the near colony environment. And let's say she finds your gel bait. And this is a uh, sugar loving ant species, right? So th- this female finds a gel bait. She will take some of it and then she will return to the colony 
And as she's doing so, she'll um, lay down a pheromone trail. Once she gets to the colony, she sends a signal chemically to nestmates. We found food resource, follow this trail, right? And so the next couple of workers start following the trail back to that food resource that the original ant was not capable of carrying all on her back or, you know, in her mouth. And those two ants now return to the nest and establish, further establish the foraging trail. And eventually through this means, they recruit nestmates to the food resource that they've discovered until it's depleted from the environment and back in the colony. That's what we mean when we talk about recruiting. And it's a, it's a really nice aspect that we can exploit, an aspect of social insect behavior that we can exploit with baits. When we're talking about paste and gel baits, they need to clean up the old bait. So when we're dealing with baits, since this is a food source, if we're talking about putting something out for cockroaches or ants in a kitchen, then one, we need to go in there and clean up any other food that they might be going to. So they are forced to go to the bait and they don't have all of these other options. And that could be dirty dishes in the sink. It could be... I don't know, something you spilled on the counter. It could be. Or underneath the kitchen sink. Yes. In most places, that cabinet, especially under the kitchen sink, never looks like something you'd see on TV. Mine included, and I'm, I'm, I'm a type A clean freak, depending on how old. Did you ever have a trash compactor break or anything like that? I mean, it. It's places like that. And the other place that most people don't consider the roach world or the ant world is behind the washing machine. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I always think about the toaster tray. Yeah. How often do you clean out your toaster tray? Daily. <laughs> okay. For us, probably more frequently than most people. But yes, to the audience, there are little things that we joke internally when we're cleaning our homes going... I'm performing IPM services that most people don't realize that's what you're really doing is you're just trying to keep any opportunity for any insect to not find their way into your home. Yeah. Bugs in nature. Great. Bugs yes. in my home. <laughs> right. So the old bait can certainly fall into that category of things yep. that are in the environment that need to be cleaned up. So they're not using that as a food source. And so usually what I do is just take a putty knife and scrape it off. If I use like a gel or a paste or something and it's become hardened and whatnot, you can do that. Another trick that you can do, if you use the bait stations, you don't have to worry about it because it's, you could just pick those up. If you're using a gel bait, you can cut sections of soda straws mm -hmm. and you could put a little dab of the bait in the soda straw and you could put that down. And that way it's real easy to pick them up and you don't need to clean it up with the putty knife. Yeah. I've often recommended just putting uh, bait on a square of uh, foil. You slide the foil under wherever, and then you can simply sweep the foil out after they've had a chance to feed on it. That way you don't have to scrape, you know, scrape off of hard surfaces and this sort of thing. This also ties into a shelf life of baits and how to store them properly to make sure that you're getting the longest amount of time possible. I mean, obviously, since these are a food resource, they're not indefinite. You can't mm -hmm. use them 30 years from now and they're going to be still a-okay. But how you store them is also going to play into that. 
Typically, when I think about storing one, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is making sure that you are closing the container after you use it mm -hmm. and sealing that properly. And then, of course, with any type of a pesticide product, when you are storing it, it's going to tell you essentially on the label, not only how to use it, where to use it, and it's also going to tell you how to store it and where to store it. And usually that's going to be in a cool, dry place that is out of reach of children and animals. And I think that that pretty much goes for baits as well. You know, the gel baits and all pastes and this sort of thing, they usually come in pretty small containers, you know, we're talking about cockroach baits. So these can be put away in some child safe situation in, inside of the house. When we get into fire ant baits though, they can come in much larger containers, you know, 25 pound bags of fire ant bait. We've already established we've got soybean oil in those baits, right? And I think, Wizzy, you mentioned it'll go rancid if it stays hot. And what a lot of people do is just store this in a shed or in a hot garage. And that is a recipe for rancid bait. You know, over the course of a summer, that bait's not going to be any good for you later on. So, you know, I always tell people, look, you probably don't need a 25-pound bag of fire ant bait for your yard, right? You can get away with a far less amount. So just buy that. I mean, you get a little bit of a price break for buying a 25 pound bag, but if you only use two pounds over the course of the year and the rest goes bad, what's the point? So buy small amounts, just the amount that you need for one treatment of your yard, because you're unlikely to have to do that again until much later in the season. If you do buy a larger container, mm -hmm. this is where I tell people, you can go around and talk to your neighbors yep. and you can bait their yards, which is mm -hmm. going to also be beneficial to you because then the other fire ants aren't moving into your space. So that's right. if you don't use all the bait that you have in your yard, then share. It's going to benefit you in the long run. For sure. And just as you said, share, unless you've got a pesticide applicator's license, don't charge your neighbors a fee for this. Otherwise you're doing professional right. pest control without a license. You can get in big trouble for that. Let's talk about advantages. Robert, you mentioned earlier, these are pretty specific to particular insects or particular groups of insects. Right. We also have that a lot of these are going to be ready to use and that you just put them out and you don't have to really do anything other than that. And then the other thing is we're not putting out massive amounts of pesticides into the environment because these are going to be contained in a small area. And so you're going to really target your application Mm -hmm. to where it needs to be because you need to put it where those insects are going to be. I think those are the big advantages of baits. You know, the possible addition of the fact that with social insects, when we use a bait, we are literally exploiting part of their behavior that makes them so successful. And that is their foraging intensities. But yeah, as you mentioned, you know, you limit the chances of effects on non-target organisms. And the other thing, just as you said, you know, you're not putting out a lot of product. This is one of the overlooked advantages of baits, I think, in that if you were to even broadcast fire ant baits across the entirety of your yard, a lot of people are unaware that, you know, that application rate is extraordinarily low compared to like broad spectrum contact insecticides because of a couple of things. The concentration of the active ingredients in baits is, is really low. And then if, if you put them out properly at the proper application rate, you're putting out very few granules per square foot. A lot of people are surprised to learn that if you apply granular baits, many of which you're familiar with in the big box stores, the number of granules that are required to kill 
your fire ant population is super low, like to the tune of like 11 granules per square yard. That's a really, really low application rate. Especially with fire ant baits, you don't have to go around and find every single fire ant. That's right. That's right. Treat it. You're letting them essentially yeah. do the work for you. That's right. For sure. A lot less time for you to apply that. Of course, there are also disadvantages and we... Essentially, this is if a non-target organism were to get a hold of baits. So this is going to be typically user application. So always, always, always read and follow the labeled instructions. Make sure that you are placing this product the way that it is. And Janet, I'm going to call on you now to talk a little bit about rodenticides because these are also a bait there are rodenticide bait products, and they have specific regulations to avoid this happening that they are going to get to unwanted target organisms. Can you chime in a little bit on that? I sure can, but I will also reiterate about some of the granular ant bait and just say that I have seen someone leave some of that stuff out and I saw squirrels getting into it. It was not meant for squirrels. So again, this is just a precautionary tale to, to pick that stuff up. At the same token, a lot of folks, our listeners might be familiar with some of the rodent baits that you used to be able to buy at the store that came in little triangle boxes and you opened it up and there were like little pellets. The US EPA clamped down on that, came up with this desire to not expose our general public to such products that can be so toxic and be mishandled by children and or non-target organisms, aka your dog or your cat, or even some other wildlife outside. So if you are trying to get rid of rodents, mice, or rats, and you decide that you want to do that yourself, it doesn't matter if you go online or again, if you go to your local hardware store, what you are going to find is a bait, same philosophy. It is just instead of it being in granular or liquid or paste, now you're seeing it either in a block or a soft packet sachet. And these, again, baits are, again, have an active ingredient that is designed to work for rodents that would kill them with minimal feeding, but it also has a desired food attractant. And rodents are no different than the ants and the roaches that we've been talking about is sometimes it has a protein, sometimes it has a carb, sometimes depending on timing of year, we actually have a liquid bait as well for rodents, but we use all of that depending on where the rats are at, what they're doing and such. So, but they all have to go in what's called a tamper resistant container. Those are those black boxes that you probably see when you're out to dinner, other places, restaurants, hospitals, shopping centers. The bait is put in there so that the rodents will go in, feed on it, and then it's not something they typically take back to the family and feed. In some cases, they do just because of the way they transport food. But for the most part, rodent bait needs to go in a tamper-resistant container. When we're dealing with essentially any type of bait, we really need to focus on where we're putting it, what we're targeting. So you are going to have to have that knowledge. And Janet, I'm going to ask this question. 
because I know that there's going to be somebody that has this burning question. When they eat the rodent bait, do they get thirsty and then they have to go find water? Because I get that all the time. Oh my God. What episode of Mythbusters are we on? As my teammates know, this is the one that just cracks me up. There is nothing in any of these rodenticides that requires the rodent to eat the bait and then go out and search for water. Yes, because of what they are, either they're an anticoagulant. In other words, they thin out the blood. If you've ever met anybody who's had thin blood, they may want to be thirsty, but the idea is the rodenticide is going to kill them before they go looking for water. If it's one of the other, what we call second generation anticoagulants, generally those They're designed to when they eat them, they eat just enough. And again, they go off and die. It's not like, oh, I'm going to wait around and die three days later. Usually it's that feeding. And then there's some others that is made of vitamin D, chlorocalciferol. But again, it gives them an overload in their system, but it doesn't make them go looking for water. They just fall over and die. And that's me being nice. For those of you that are listening to this and want more on rodents, we do have a specific podcast that we did in 2021 that was just covering rodents. So if you want more information, please go there. But I'm trying to cover all the burning questions that I always get on rodenticides just in case. So the other one is if my insert pet animal here eats the dead rodent that died from eating the bait, what will happen? It's interesting you mentioned that because I was at a conference last week and there's been some research on that and they really cannot link one to the other because the ingestion rate is so low. However, if that pet was to get into a pail of rodenticide because somebody didn't put a cover on it or something, then that's a different story because they've looked at other mammals, coyotes, bobcats and such And seeing how that works, and it may be in them, but understand this, larger animals have some reflexes in their body to push out some of that toxicant that rats do do not. There's some, some ways, and again, think body size as well, but do I recommend Fido playing with dead rat? Not always, but Wizzy and I can tell you that it happens. (laughs) I actually plucked one out. I had to chase the dog around the yard on like Saturday that I had to get the rat out of the dog's mouth because two of the dogs were fighting over it, wanting to both play with it. And I was just like, this is a nightmare. Talk a war with a rat and two dogs. No, <laughs> never mind. Uh, so the last question that I always tend to get on rodenticides is, can't I just chunk bait in the attic and be done with it? No, it's against the law. She mentioned earlier, it has to be in a contained system. The practice of taking a rodenticide that is made with, again, an active ingredient and grain and tossing it up in an attic that can have humidity and drying and whatever. And if they never feed on it, that will lead to other problems because we've talked about those, you know, carpet beetles, some of the other flying insects. There's so many things. Oh, I went to a house that they had rodent bait that somebody chunked in the attic and they had red flower beetles all over their house because they were eating the seeds from the rodent bait. We had to clean all of that stuff up and then the beetle problem went away. 
while you think you're getting rid of one thing, you're not. I mean, if you're not sure you've got animals up in your attic, I never say throw bait up anywhere. If you're, if you're worried about that, we can have a whole other podcast on this, but it's called a game camera. We'll start there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unwanted Guests. We hope that you have learned a little bit of information about pesticidal baits and how they work and what they're utilized for. And make sure that you're using them properly. And you can do that by reading and following the labeled instructions. If you want more information about this or other insect topics, go to extensionentomology.tamu.edu. And we will catch you next time on Unwanted Guests.